In one of the earlier episodes, his chief of staff gives what has become a very famous speech to one of his kind of in-trouble colleagues. And this is what he says. There's a guy walking down a street when he falls into a hole. The walls are so steep, he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts out, hey, can you help me out of here? So the doctor writes a prescription, throws it in the hole and walks on by. Our guy's still in the hole. Next, a priest comes along and the guy shouts out, father, can you help me? I'm in a hole. So the priest stops, writes out a prayer, throws it into the hole, moves on. Our guy's still in the hole. Then finally, a friend comes along and the guy shouts out, hey, Joe, can you help me out of here? And the friend jumps into the hole. And our guy in the hole says, what on earth are you doing? Now we're both stuck in the hole. But his friend says, yeah, but I've been here before and I know the way out. And I tell you this story because that's exactly where we're going this morning with Joseph in our series on kingdom living in a hostile world. Uh, This morning we find Joseph in one of his deepest holes of the entire story. And my hope quite simply this morning is that as we think about maybe holes we've faced in our lives, we'll let Joseph jump in with us and show us the way out. So let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that your spirit would be here with us now as we listen to your word. Father, I pray that it wouldn't be my words or the cleverness of anything I've put down on paper that leaves here today. Lord, I pray it would be you teaching us by your spirit through your word. And Lord, I pray you would equip us for those difficult times in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Before we even look at the passage, um, I'm going to take a slight risk and I'm going to call out two possible reactions you might have already had to what I've said this morning. Some of you might be feeling (sighs) in holes, getting out of holes, difficult times. Really, Joe, is that what we need to hear right now? It's a beautiful sunny day. I'm in a great place with my walk with God. As a church, you're in a season of joy and praise Is this really what we want to hear right now? And at the other end of the scale, you might be thinking, well, actually, yeah, I am facing a bit of a hard time right now. I am feeling pretty low. But be honest, I'm not really seeing God do much. And I'm not really sure you know what I'm going through. So is there really anything that can help me this morning? Well, to those of you in the place of joy, my aim this morning is absolutely not to take you down from that place. That's a great place to be in. It's a place that God loves us to be in. But I also want to suggest it's also a great place to start preparing where higher times may come in the future. If we prepare for suffering before it comes, we've got some tools to deal with it. And it's also a great place to help people who maybe aren't in such a great place right now you can relate to what they're going through and have some counsel and wisdom for them that's an amazing gift so if you're in that group i hope you stay tuned and likewise to you at the other end of the scale um, i'm going to hold my hands up at this point and say you're right i probably don't know what you're going through i probably haven't experienced it um, and i probably don't know what it actually feels like to be in your situation right now i guess all i want to say to that is I think we've got a guy in this story who probably has. We've got a guy in Joseph who has been through the most horrendous circumstances. And I think wherever you are right now, there'll be something in Joseph's experience that you can latch on to and hear from God today. So again, 
hope you stay tuned. And I'm aware we could be treading on some quite sensitive ground this morning, which is why I'm really keen, as I say, to just let God do the talking, let God do the talking through his word. Um, so on that note, let's have a look at this morning's passage. Uh, this is our third instalment of the Joseph series. So if you've got a Bible with you, um, then if you can turn to Genesis chapter 40. Um, if you don't have a Bible or are fairly new to the Bible and less confident in finding your way around, I'm sure someone around you will be happy to share. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him, why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there was no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat away at your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to him in his interpretation. The cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So where are we going with this today? Well, st to start with, under the heading of Joseph's darkest hour, um, I want to have a look at a quick reminder of how Joseph ended up in prison and also why I think this is the absolute lowest point for Joseph in, his, in this story. Um, then my second heading will be Joseph's response. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. 
we're going to really zoom in on how Joseph reacted to being in prison and hopefully draw some really practical application for us from that section, which is called Lessons from Joseph in Jail. And then finally, we're going to zoom right back out again and look at this story kind of in the bigger picture of scripture um, and simply under the heading of Joseph points us to Jesus. Okay, so to start with, Joseph's darkest hour. Let's have a quick review of the things that have happened so far to Joseph in the series we've been looking at. So he very early on in his life was hated by pretty much all the rest of his brothers. He was then sent on a dangerous journey by his father to try and find them all. When he got there, he was thrown into a deep hole, thrown into a well by his brothers, intending to be left there to die. They had a bit of a change of heart. They got him out again and instead sold him into slavery to Egypt. Once he got there, he had to serve 14 years in the house of Potiphar in a completely alien culture. That's a pretty bad list of things to have happened to anyone in a whole lifetime. And we've already got there in week three of the Joseph story. So why am I saying that this time in jail was the absolute worst of worst? Why did I introduce this story with a um, this message of a story about a man being in a hole when Joseph has already been literally in a hole. How can a prison be more like a hole than a hole? Well, I think it is for kind of four main reasons. Um, first of all, as we we're going through the passage, uh, you probably picked up that there were some fairly miserable conditions going on in the prison Joseph was in. Um, at one point, the writer refers to it as being a dungeon. So prisons under Pharaoh in ancient Egypt were not known for their focus on restorative justice. They were known as places to inflict misery and pain and suffering. And even though Joseph had been given a certain level of responsibility in the prison, he would not have been protected from that. So it was just physically and emotionally a horrible place to be in. Secondly, there's the pain of being there on completely unjust grounds. Um, We heard last week about how he'd been accused by Potiphar's wife um, of playing sport with her in her own words. When actually we see it was her who was trying to tempt Joseph um, into immorality all along. So he knows that he's in there completely falsely. He's done nothing wrong. Complete travesty of justice. He's in this jail. I think the third reason why this jail is so bad is this, this is almost the furthest away from those dreams he had in the first passage, those dreams of destiny, those dreams of what God was doing in his life, of the whole story. Chris spoke last week about how hard it must have been living with those dreams in Potiphar's house, in what was an alien culture. But he, at least there, he had some contact with the world, some sense that maybe God could have done something through this. But now he's in jail, absolutely cut off. How could those dreams possibly come true? And then finally, we saw at the end of the passage how all of his good works in jail were completely ignored. And we'll come back to this point. But I think it's worth highlighting here that that vague bit of hope, maybe, maybe the cupbearer will get me out of here. Absolutely dashed as we read the cupbearer forgot all about him. So that's why I'm saying that this is the lowest point of the story. And that's why I'm kind of taking us down the road of how do we deal with hard times? How do we deal with trials? How do we deal with suffering this morning? As I say, I I really don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your dark place is. I don't know what your jail is, whether that's in the present or something you've been through in the past. 
But again, I really want to bring over the fact I think Joseph can teach us. Joseph can teach us how we respond in that place. So that's my first and fairly brief point. This was Joseph's darkest hour. So my second point, Joseph's response. How did Joseph respond to these miserable conditions? Well, last week we heard Chris outline the principles of identity, integrity, destiny and authority as he served in Potiphar's house. And he summed all of those up into the phrase practising the presence. Joseph practised the presence while he was in Potiphar's house. And I want you to keep all of that in mind as we look from Joseph's response in prison, because all of that is absolutely foundational, again, to how Joseph responds in jail. But we're going to zoom into some some real specifics here. So my first lesson, um, if you if you keep your Bibles open, we're going to go through the whole passage quite quickly and pick out seven key lessons from Joseph. So lesson number one, Joseph maintained his holiness Um, Have a look with me at verse four. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. Like in Potiphar's house, he won over the favours of the officials where he was serving very quickly. He clearly gained the trust of the prison officers. And the only way he would have done this is if he had upheld his character, if he had upheld what good living and upright living looked like in the middle of a really difficult circumstance. And to be honest, I think it would have been quite easy for Joseph at this point to have thrown his hands up and said, right, that's it. I give up. I've had enough. No more helpful behaviour. No more work ethic. No more positivity. It was bad enough being a slave in Potiphar's house. But now here I am in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I'm through. Through with helping people. Through with trying to live for God. I'm done. I think that would have been quite understandable, to be honest, if Joseph had done that. And it's so easy, though, isn't it, for us to fall into that way of thinking over even just small obstacles in life. Think about when a decision goes against your way in the workplace or how you can turn from a calm, lovable human being into a raging maniac at the smallest road traffic provocation. And this is way beyond the scale of those examples. Joseph's here is beyond it's beyond his neck to degrees I can't describe. And yet he maintains his character here. He maintains his holiness. He maintains his integrity. And it's through this that God brings Joseph into contact with those people who will eventually secure his release. Joseph's holiness was absolutely essential to God's eventual plan to get him out of here. And we need to never underestimate the power of good living. We need to never underestimate the power of kingdom living in the language of our series. Even if it seems utterly futile, utterly ignorant, utterly ignored at the time, God works through our character. He works through our holiness. And if we throw that in the bin, he can't work through that. So lesson number one, in the middle of trial, Joseph maintains his holiness. Lesson number two, Joseph maintains his compassion. Have a look with me at verses six and seven. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him, why are your faces so sad today? Whoa. Joseph immediately notices the plight of others around him, despite his own plight. And you can see in his questioning that this isn't some kind of offhanded, oh, what's wrong with you then this morning? This is real care. 
He really cares about what's, why these faces have been made sad. And again, it's, it's so easy to shut down this part of us when we find ourselves in difficulty, isn't it? It's so easy just to shut ourselves down to the needs and the hurts of others when we feel we're in a place of such need and hurt ourselves. I'm just too tired right now to think about another good cause. I just really don't have the energy to have that difficult conversation with him or with her. And actually, if she knew what I was going through, I bet she wouldn't look so miserable right now. And again, in human terms, this kind of reaction is what we'd expect from Joseph. But he doesn't follow that logic. He follows the logic of the kingdom. He stays true to the compassion that God has put in his heart, despite all of the blows that he's been given. And that's what kingdom people do. They keep giving even through the pain. However hard it is, they hold on to their compassion. Okay, for our next two lessons, let's go to verse eight. Um, And while I do hope you listen for longer than the next five minutes, if you do only listen for five minutes in this sermon, I hope it's the next five minutes. Because the two lessons we're going to look at here are the absolute central ones. They're absolutely critical to how we respond to trial as kingdom people. So lesson number three. Uh, Joseph holds on to his connection to God. Have a look with me. Um, second half of verse eight. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And the reason I think that shows that Joseph has held on to his connection to God is that he's got absolutely no doubt in his mind that if they tell them his dreams, God will show them the interpretation. He knows that those channels are still open. And that's, wow, I was just blown away by that confidence as I meditated in it. When we're in church and, we're, and we've got the presence of God with us and we, we've got people we know around us, it can be hard even then to have the confidence to bring a word or an interpretation to someone. But right here, in the midst of his suffering, Joseph's like, tell me, God will tell me the interpretation. He refuses to let go of that connection. And why I said this is such an important lesson is because actually... All of the other lessons we're looking at this morning, none of them work if we don't have our connection to God. If we try and be compassionate, if we try and be holy, if we try and stay spiritually alert without that connection to God, then we're going to start doing it in our own strength. We're going to start doing it legalistically and that just, it doesn't fly. We'll we'll crash very quickly. So if we're to do any of this, we have to hold on to our connection of God. And contrast this to the advice we hear Job's wife give in the story of Job. And he says, when she says, why don't you just curse God and die? He has clearly abandoned you. It's hopeless. Curse him. Give up. And again, if anyone would have been justified in doing that, it would have been Joseph. He could have so easily again turned around to the prisoners and said, you think you've had bad dreams. You think you have had bad dreams. Let me tell you about my bad dreams. A bad dream is being hated by my brothers. A bad dream is being thrown into a pit. A bad dream is being sold into a foreign land. A bad dream is having 14 years of my life serving in a house which I didn't really believe in and then being falsely accused and thrown into prison. That is a bad dream. Uh, You think you've got problems. Maybe think about looking so sad before mentioning your bad dreams being the future. Again, could have so easily said that, but he didn't. He offered up his gift of dream interpretation to them. He kept on giving to them. And as I said, I think this is both the most important, but also the hardest 
of all of the lessons when we find ourselves in times of desperation. When all of our circumstances scream the opposite, how do we keep on believing in the goodness of God to us? If we're in a season of spiritual depression, how can we keep on believing the goodness of God to us? If we find ourselves caught in a sin where we've prayed for him a million times to take away and he just doesn't seem to be moving, how can we keep on believing his goodness to us? For brothers and sisters, the alternative to that is no alternative at all for kingdom people. If we give up on the goodness of God towards us, we commit spiritual suicide. So we cut ourselves off from the one, from the source, who is able to turn around even the most desperate of our situations. So lesson three, Joseph holds on to his connection to God. And a really related lesson is that Joseph stays spiritually alert. Not only does he believe that God is still with him and will still show him dreams, he sees the opportunity. He sees the opportunity that the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker give him to let God break in. He maintains spiritually alert. It's almost like he's got an anticipation that there could be some breakthrough coming when he hears of these dreams from the cupbearer and the baker. And it is one thing having those gifts, and it's a great thing to have those gifts, but being alert enough to know when God wants us to use them, when he wants us to take that risk, is another thing altogether. And that's something that I'm absolutely still learning. I think that as a church, we're in a season of learning at the moment. How do we bring our gifts in those opportune moments to break out into the world around us. And along with our compassion, shutting down our spiritual alertness is one of our, often our first coping mechanisms in times of difficulty. But I, got, I just, need to, just need to focus on where I am right now. Not going not gonna to use my gifts right now, just for a season while you get me through this. But actually, we heard last week about the upside down logic of God's kingdom. Chris spoke about that about how God works in unusual circumstances. And it's often actually in the rainy days that he wants to do more of his work for us. It's often in those times where there's actually more fertile ground for kingdom breakthrough than in the sunny days. And if we're going to take advantage of all God's got for us in our trials, we need to stay spiritually alert, as it's often through our gifts that God does that work. Just imagine if Joseph had missed this moment, Imagine if he had just thought, ah, some dreams, we all have bad dreams, so what, let's go on with the day. He would have missed this critical moment in God's eventual plan to get him out. And we've got to remember that actually Joseph didn't have the big picture view. He didn't know how this was going to end when he was in the middle of it. It's quite easy to read the Joseph story. And obviously we can see God's sovereign hand over all of it, which is a great gift for us. But Joseph didn't have that luxury. He had no idea how God was going to get him from where he was to the dreams of destiny that he had had early on in his life. But despite that not knowing, and as that not seeing, Joseph had a faith here that God would do something through these dreams. So he offered up his gifts, he gave the interpretations, didn't know how God was going to work, but he did it. He just offered himself for God's service, wherever he found himself. As a bit of a side note here, I also think it's interesting how the dreams themselves seem to have little effect on the cupbearer and the baker. The fact that they knew their fate three days in advance 
made absolutely no difference to the fate itself. We saw the cupbearer get restored and we saw the baker get hanged. Obviously, the main point of the story isn't their journey. So we don't know. Maybe in those three days, they did do some soul searching. They did do some getting right with God. But that's pure speculation. We actually don't know. And from everything we see in the story, it just, as a matter of fact, says those were the interpretations. This is what's going to happen. This is what happened. And I think sometimes the parallel I want to draw for us here is that when we offer up our gifts and don't see any immediate impact or any immediate effects, that can be quite discouraging. But actually, it's not up to us to monitor the impact of our gifts. It's up to God to do the impact. God's just asking us to offer up the gift. So maybe you've seen someone receive a word and they've not really seemed to take it to heart and not have any effect on their lives. That can be discouraging. Maybe someone who isn't a believer, you have a sudden picture for them from God and they seem quite encouraged by it. But then nothing comes of it. They don't, they don't turn to Jesus. They carry on living as they've always done. Or maybe even a healing. Maybe someone gets healed on the street. They go, that's brilliant. And then just walk away, off onto life. Well, actually, that's not up to us. That's up to God. We have no idea what God might do with those things in a year, in five years or ten years time. And it might even be, as in the case of this story, that that word, that picture or that healing is for some other purpose of God. Maybe it's for our benefit. These dreams we see are ultimately for Joseph's benefit and not for the benefit of the cupbearer and the baker. So the big lesson of staying spiritually alert is just offer up your gifts in any and every circumstance. It's up to God to do the work, not us. So there we go. Those are the two big lessons, but we've got a few more. Um, turn with me to verse 14. Joseph says, but when all goes well with me, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of prison. And my point here is that Joseph is still holding on to his dreams. The very desire to get out of jail shows that he hasn't completely surrendered his destiny. Um, and I don't want to spend too long on this because Chris covered it excellently in Potiphar's house last week. But he absolutely believed that this is not the end for me. Those longer grow dreams, they will be fulfilled. And I can only imagine that actually, however hard it might be to believe it, those dreams were a source of strength to Joseph in his hard time. What God had shown him earlier on in his life, Joseph clung on to as a source of strength through all of the dark hours he had to walk. And my encouragement here is Simon in the first week um, encouraged us to think about any dreams we may have let die. We spent some time responding at the end of that talk to letting God breathe his life into them again. I just want to repeat that call today. Are there any dreams that you need to keep on letting God breathe life back into? Are there any words that have been given in the past that you've forgotten about, but actually you need to dig up, have a listen or have a read over again and use them as a real source of strength if you're not feeling in such a great place right now? So kingdom living means holding on to our dreams. It means not surrendering our destiny, however desperate it looks. Okay, lesson number six, verse 15. For I was forcefully carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put into a dungeon. And the lesson here is that Joseph holds on to his sense of justice. When we find ourselves in situations we don't deserve, 
we can so easily end up losing our sense of justice. To begin with, we'll probably be full of righteous indignation that this unjust thing has happened to us. But as time goes on and our defences get worn down, it becomes so difficult to live with that injustice that we just decide, well, actually, I can't see any hope of justice in this situation. Actually, I'm just going to accept my fate because that's easier emotionally than hanging on to this great injustice. And we can even get into a place of dehumanising ourselves and others around us when we believe that we actually deserve what we're getting, even when we really don't. And you hear tragic stories of people in abusive situations ending up believing that they deserve that abuse. And that's because we lose our sense of justice, because it's so hard to hold on to when we're in a dark situation. But again, Joseph here, holding on to this sense of justice, shows that he hasn't let go. He hasn't let go of his humanity. He hasn't let go of the humanity of those around him. He hasn't let go of his belief that God ultimately will bring justice in every situation in the world. Look how articulate he is. Look how crystal clear his assertion of innocence is. He knows he is in the right and he has refused to let that go. And I don't think these are just the words of someone saying anything to try and sneak him out of the back door of prison. No, these are the words of someone who knows he is in the right. He knows that he is still approved by God and that he has done nothing to deserve it. He's not let his identity be corroded by the injustice that has been committed against him. Kingdom people hold on to justice. So the final lesson in this section, number seven, look with me at verses 20 to 23. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once again he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to him in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And my lesson here is slightly different from the tone of the other ones. But my lesson here is we can never count on the world's favour. In living out our identity as kingdom people, we can never count on the world's favour. We saw last week in our Joseph story how actually in Potiphar's house, in what we could call the world, in a position of power, he did gain favour. He gained extraordinary favour. Um, in winning, winning over his master through his character. And, and I'm not saying let go of that. That's hugely encouraging for us as we think about being salt and light in the world. But what I think these verses do is they act a necessary counterbalance when we think about interacting with the power structures of the world. Because we see here just how brutal power can be when it's separated from God. Pharaoh spares one person and he executes another. And we're given no reason why that's the case. We, we, we understand that their sin, their crime to get them into jail was the same. We don't know about any favouritism before it. But just purely on a whim, because he's got the power, because he can do it, Pharaoh spares one life and ends another. That is brutal power. And that's often how the world works. And look at the end. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And to commit a great naughtiness and steal five words from next week's passage. Becky Rev, if you're here, I hope you forgive me. When two, four years had passed, 
Two more years. Joseph had asked the cupbearer for a very simple thing. Mention me to Pharaoh when I get out. The cupbearer was in the same desperate situation that Joseph was in. Yet as soon as he was out, as soon as he was scot-free and in the favour of power again, absolutely forgot about him. And Joseph languished there for another two years. Two years of setback and two years of misery because the world didn't recognise his good works in a way that it should have done. So the tension here is that we can expect both extraordinary blessing from God, but also extraordinary rejection from the world when we engage in the world. And I think this is a tension for those of us who work in the public square or feel we have some kind of public calling need to be particularly aware of. Do not underestimate the breakthroughs that God can bring through you. But at the same time, don't be surprised when you receive absolutely undeserved knocks and setbacks in your mission. So to summarise those seven lessons in a phrase, Joseph refuses to give up on his character, he refuses to give up on his calling, and he refuses to give up on his God. Despite abject injustice and poverty, he refuses to dehumanise himself or others, and he doesn't go down the curse God and die route either. He keeps hoping in God, even when he can't see the way out. And I hope these lessons offer some kind of really tangible and practical things for us to do as we practice kingdom living in the workplace, at home or wherever we find ourselves during the week. Chris last week spoke about Monday morning on steroids. Um, And what we have here, I think, is the response from when that steroid laden Monday morning in the world life tries to clobber us one. This is what we can throw back at it. This is what we can throw back. Guys, I know this stuff is not easy in the middle of hard times. I've struggled enough trying to apply these lessons to myself this week. To be honest, this has been a great, perfectly happy week for me. And as I hinted at earlier, the worst thing we could possibly do is to take these lessons as some kind of moral improvement checklist and to start trying to tick them off legalistically or to use them as a source of self-condemnation when we fail to live up to them. That's the worst thing we could do from this morning. We grow from these lessons and we grow from all of the lessons of scripture only in the context of our secure, grace-covered, identity-defining relationship with our Father. We heard in the worship earlier how God keeps on being gracious to us. It's not just a point of salvation thing. He keeps on giving us grace every day. And it's only in the context of that grace and that personal connection to our God that these lessons can be powerful to us. Please don't turn them into legalistic moralism. So is that it from our passage from this morning? Is there anything more we can learn? Well, I think there is something more that we need to do with this passage this morning. And valuable as I hope these lessons are, I think this story does something even more important than model kingdom living to us. I think this passage compels us to look forward to Jesus and look forward to his teaching on the hard path of discipleship. So my third heading is simply, Joseph points us to Jesus. Um, I don't know about you, but I actually just can't read the Joseph story um, without being transported forward to Jesus. Um, In the opening talk, Simon drew the comparison between Joseph being sold for silver and Jesus being betrayed for pittance of coins by Judas. 
We've also got a series of Bible studies um, being promoted through our Facebook page this year called Glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. And Joseph is one of those stories. And for my money, I actually think that the Joseph story as a whole is one of the clearest glimpses we get of Jesus in the whole Old Testament. Um, In theological language, Joseph could be called a type of Christ. And that is someone who comes before Jesus in the Old Testament, but models or anticipates something of the character and the mission of the saviour king that is to come. And I've introduced this term not to sound clever, but because I think it gives us a really useful tool, a really practical tool when we're reading the Bible for ourselves and asking those questions. Oh, God, what are you saying to me through this character? What are you saying to me through this story? We can kind of look forward and try and see the glimpses of Jesus in all of the pages of the Old Testament. So with that in mind, and with our emphasis on kingdom living in a hostile world, as I say, I want to turn to the teaching that Jesus gives us on living as a Christian, about being one of his disciple people, or, or in our language, being a kingdom person. So I made a statement earlier on that I think at some point in our life, all of us will find ourselves in a hole like Joseph. All of us will find ourselves in a hole like our guy in the introduction to the story. But I want us to take a step further here. And I want to propose that actually Jesus and the writers of the New Testament describe the normal, consistent experience of being a disciple in this world as one of trial, of one of opposition and one of suffering. I can imagine that's probably quite a shocking statement to anyone here who is still looking into the Christian faith and the teaching of Jesus. Surely isn't Christianity all about forgiveness? Isn't it all about joy, celebration, victory, heaven? Well, yes, yes and yes, it is absolutely about all of those things. That's where God is leading us. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we make a joyful noise in our worship. But actually, Jesus teaches us that the path where we find those blessings, the path to that final destiny, isn't some kind of pain-free, carefree, money-in-the-bank, swimming-pool kind of life, guaranteed by faith. Sadly, there is that kind of prosperity gospel teaching out there. But I want to say bluntly that that is not the message of Jesus. That is not the message of Scripture. I mean, listen to me instead about how Jesus describes what it's like to walk as one of his disciples. He said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily. That doesn't sound like prosperity teaching to me. And again, further on in Luke, Luke chapter 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Skipping forward a bit. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hard words. Really, really hard words. And words that leave us in no doubt that the shape of the path we walk as disciples of Jesus is the shape of the cross. And this is why Jesus taught about counting the cost. It wasn't to scare us out of being his disciples. No, he he longs for us to be his disciples. But he knew that the road we had to walk was hard. And he knew that if we didn't count that cost 
and cling to him in every circumstance, that when we did hit the roadblocks, when we did hit the pits of life, then we'd fall away from him. And we won't be able to turn around at the end of the day and say to Jesus, that was a bit of a rough ride. You didn't tell me that was coming. No, Jesus makes it absolutely crystal clear that it's not an easy path to glory. It's not an easy path to destiny. And this is why what we're looking at in Joseph, not just this morning, but throughout the whole of our series, this is why what we're looking at, kingdom living in a hostile world, isn't just some kind of nice nuggets of kind of self-help, character study, something a bit lighter to get us through the summer months. No, this is stuff of life and death. This is the stuff we're going to face every day of our life in our walk with Jesus. This is the stuff we're going to face in our workplace, in our homes, wherever we are tomorrow. So while Joseph's circumstances may be fairly extreme, all of us will have that path to walk. It will look different for each of us, but we will each have a Joseph path to walk. We will each have a cross-shaped path to walk. But we shouldn't take these warnings of Jesus without looking at the amazing promises that he gives us to endure through these warnings. So the second thing we need to look at in Jesus' teaching is how we overcome these trials. He's established we will face trials. So how do we overcome them and get to that place of God's joy, God's love, God's calling, our final home? Well, listen with me at Romans 8, chapters 35 and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being called all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can walk this path. We can have the strength to persevere because it all comes from Jesus. It comes back to that connection to God, that love of Christ, that love of Christ that has conquered over tribulation, famine, trial and sword. It's that love, not our own strength, that will allow us to walk this path. And listen to read to Jude verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Present you blameless. We sung earlier in our worship about how he has cleansed and sanctified us. And that same idea comes back here. When we stand before him at the end of the path, we will be blameless. He will have done it. He will have brought us through. He would have got us through all of the prisons, all of the holes, all of the trials of life. And Jesus will present us to the Father and say, look what I've done. Look who I've brought through. Look at his love, her love in me. Look what I've done. So Joseph provides us with some amazing examples of kingdom living in a hostile world. But we actually need to go further than that. We need to let Joseph take us to Jesus and see that it is only in Jesus that we're going to persevere. It's only in Jesus that we will get to the place of life, of victory, of glory. So to go back to our man in the hole story that we started with, I said we were going to invite Joseph down in the hole to lead us out. Actually, what I think we've done is we've invited Joseph into the hole, and he is probably the best company we could ever ask for in that hole. But it's not Joseph who leads us out of the hole. It's actually Jesus Jesus, our truest friend, our closest friend, he is the one who needs to come down and lift us out of that hole. 
Listen with me at Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried with him with baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus came into that hole, his death, and he lifted us up again in his resurrection. And really, that's where I want to leave us this morning. I think the fundamental application of what we're looking at this morning is just behold Jesus. Behold what he's done for you. Behold his resurrection. Behold that he is the one who gives you the strength to get through all of the trials of life. It is only in Jesus. It is only in his indestructible, eternal, justifying, redeeming, renewing love that we're going to overcome. It's only from that place that we're going to have the strength to make the choice to keep hold of our holiness, to keep hold of our calling, to keep on treating others as human beings rather than dehumanise them. It's the only way we're going to keep ourselves from throwing our dreams into the dustbin. Look at Jesus. He will make them all come true. I'm going to repeat again how easy it is for us to forget that Jesus, uh, sorry, Joseph didn't know the outcome of his story when he was in the middle of it. He remained faithful despite not knowing the outcome. We see what wonders God worked in his life and we can have the confidence that even if we can't quite see where we're going, God is working a mighty picture, a mighty story in our life too. We have a mighty saviour to hold on to. He is guaranteed that he will keep us from falling away if we hold tightly to our hope in him. Wherever we find ourselves, he will not give up on us. He will always provide us with an option of hope. So wherever you are today, whether you're at the top of that mountain of joy or in the bottom of the depths of despair, let's choose together to take hold of that hope in Christ.